Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gomison and it is my immense privilege to be your host for this show. I enjoy coming to you each week with encouragement and admonishment on this road that we call the Christian life. The Christian life is not meant to be a solitary effort, but it's meant to be a community, the body of Christ. And as I often say, it is not a sprint, it is a marathon, and we need each other. So I'm so grateful that you are here. I'm grateful that we are celebrating almost 10 years of broadcasting. We are just a few weeks away from that wonderful celebration, and I'm excited about it. I just want to say right here at the top of the show, make sure that you are contacting me with any thoughts that you have about this past decade uh, you can leave a voicemail on my blog, you can send me an email, or you can post a message on my personal Facebook page. You can search Andrew Gamison on Facebook and find me that way. So a variety of ways that you can get in touch and let us know how you are feeling as we approach 10 years. We are so thankful to God for all that he has done, and I say we because I've had so many people contribute on this podcast and I'm excited at the end of the show to once again go into the Speaking for Him scrapbook and bring you uh, some clips from an interview that I did with a good friend of mine and a warrior in the area of homeschooling, particularly second generation homeschooling, Israel Wayne. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. The main topic of today's show is talking about our Unique Attributes of Christianity series, which we are continuing, and we are talking today about justice and mercy. There is a unique opportunity within the realm of Christianity to be relieved from the guilt of our sin, and it's not through the claim that we are mostly good. Rather, it is through the claim of embracing the justice and mercy offered to us at the cross of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ. We will be digging into that more fully as we go into this episode, but first, let's talk about what is going on. Well, I hope you all had a really good weekend. This past weekend, uh, we commemorated the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Never forget, today marks 21 years since the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Hijacked planes crashed into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania. It is a day we remember. Today, people are going to the scenes of those tragedies determined to never forget the fallen. Bradley Blackburn reports from Lower Manhattan. Frank Siller has made it his mission to honor the memory of the victims of 9-11. When we think about what their lives would have been if they were still here. Siller's brother, Stephen, was among the nearly 3,000 people killed that day. The 34-year-old firefighter ran from Brooklyn to lower Manhattan while carrying 60 pounds of equipment. It's important that our children, our children's children, and then their children always remember what happened on September 11, 2001. Siller's family started the Tunnel to Towers Foundation as a way to channel their grief into something positive. Our family made a conscious decision after 9-11 that we were going to rise above it, we we're going to get off our knees, and we were going to do something to honor all those who perished that day. Today's gathering here where the Twin Towers once stood has been scaled down somewhat from a year ago when a huge crowd turned out to observe the 20th anniversary of the tragedy. I think that when it comes right down to it, America will never forget. Get. And it's important uh, that we have days like this. Vice President Kamala Harris is representing the White House at the event in New York, while President Biden attends ceremonies at the Pentagon, and the First Lady attends the Flight 93 Memorial near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Bradley Blackburn, CBS News, New York. I truly hope the gentleman in this news story is correct when he says we will never forget. That is why I bring it up each year, because I think it's important for us to remember what happened and the unity that resulted, especially as we see the chaos and disunity around us today. I think it was really good to see the unity in a post-9-11 world. I think many people have said this, and I echo the sentiment, 
that I do not want 911 to come back to the US, but I wouldn't mind seeing 912, 13, 14 and 15 come back because the unity that we felt in the days after 911 was really unprecedented and it really felt good. It felt good to go everywhere and see people loving America and loving each other uh, and just being willing to roll up their sleeves and being willing to care for other people, some that uh, you didn't even know. And there were lines at blood banks that were so long that they had to turn people away because they said, we have more than enough. What a wonderful thing to have occur around something like 9-11 and its aftermath. I was just so blessed to witness that, to see beauty come from ashes. And I'll never forget where I was on 9-11. I was sitting in my uh, room where actually I'm sitting right now, and I was working on some correspondence work for college, and I was just starting a regular day. And I'm not sure exactly if I remember reading a little blurb about the first plane hitting the towers, but I know when the first plane hit, they just thought it might have been a little commuter. They didn't think much of it. Uh, But then the second plane hits, and my brother runs downstairs, and he says, America is under attack. And at that point, I turned on the radio, and we really spent the next four days with the rest of America just transfixed, At our television sets, I remember at that time we did not have a working TV, so my mom actually went out and bought an antenna so we could watch the news coverage. And it was just very surreal that something like that could happen on U.S. soil. And it reminded me of the fact that we need to be always on our guard and always ready uh, to say goodbye to people that we love. You know, a lot of times we get caught up in, in petty arguments and... I often think about in terms of how do I want to leave this conversation with the people that I love. And so I am very free with saying I love you because I want, if it is the last conversation that I have with someone, I want them to know that that is exactly how I feel about them. And we never know when our number is going to be called. We never know when the end of our life is going to be. So we need to make the most of it. And we still have people reeling from the result of 9-11. We lost almost 3,000 people. I know there were some big stories about 9-11 widows who were pregnant at the time that their husbands died. And so their children grew up without their fathers because they were on the planes or they were in the trade center. And there's just any number of stories uh, about 9-11 and its aftermath. I remember hearing one story last year, I think around 9-11, about a girl who has great regrets because she knows that the last conversation she had with her father was a fight and he died in the World Trade Center. So... Again, I think it's an important reminder for us to keep our account short with God and with man and make sure we're in a good place with those we love and to just be prepared when life changes because it can change on a dime. I think the COVID-19 pandemic in another way has shown us how fast life can change and I think the only thing consistent about life is change. So we need to be aware of that. The next story that I want to bring up is that this past Thursday, September 8th, we said goodbye to Elizabeth II, Queen of England, after 70 years on the throne. The Queen has passed away. The Queen died peacefully, the royal family says, at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96. 
John, uh, her health in just recent weeks and months um, obviously was called into question. Um, there were some of the instances uh, at, around her birthday back in April she missed due to her health declining, and it has come to this day where we now say goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, when you think about her reign, it, it is remarkable. She, she, she became queen upon her father Charles VI's death in February of 1952. Her coronation was June 3rd of the following year, but she has sat on that throne for 70 years now, becoming not only the longest reigning monarch in UK history, but the longest reigning monarch in, in world history as well. And she remained vital right up until the very end. I mean, it is a sad day in the UK and around the world, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, but what an amazing life she lived, what amazing service uh, she, she, she delivered to the UK and 14 other Commonwealth countries around the world. And, and, the, and the fact that she was so beloved here in the United States, despite this country's history uh, with Britain going back to the 1700s, I mean, really is a testament to her being a force of, of nature and such a, a person to look up to uh, in so many countries around the world. Queen Elizabeth II was born into the Royal Windsor family on April 21, 1926. At birth, as the oldest daughter of the Duke and Duchess of York and niece to the king, no one expected that little Elizabeth, Alexandra Mary, would one day be the longest serving and one of the most respected rulers of Great Britain. But a love story would transform her quiet country childhood into an altogether different destiny. When Elizabeth's uncle, Prince Edward, abdicated as king to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Elizabeth's father reluctantly took the throne, becoming King George VI in 1936, making his oldest and then 10-year-old daughter Elizabeth his heir to the throne. At age 14, the homeschooled princess began to take on some royal duties. Her family was an outward expression of strength and resilience as England was battered by the Blitz in World War II. In 1945, at age 18, the young princess trained as a driver and mechanic in the Women's Auxiliary Service. She and her sister Margaret later joined those celebrating VE Day on the streets of London. Like thousands of others, she also had a sweetheart in the armed forces, her third cousin, Prince Philip of Greece. They were engaged to be married shortly after the princess's 21st birthday. The royal wedding held November of 1947 in London's Westminster Abbey. It brightened the gloom of those post-war years. The following year, the couple's first child, Charles, the Prince of Wales, was born. He was then followed by Princess Anne in 1950, Andrew in 1959, and Edward in 1963. But in 1952, while in Kenya with Prince Philip, Elizabeth learned the tragic news that her beloved father, the king, had died. In an instant, the 25-year-old became the Queen of England. At my coronation, I shall dedicate myself anew to your service. Elizabeth was to rule in a new era. Her coronation, in all its splendor, was the first to be broadcast on television, as millions around the globe watched the transformation as it happened. In 1957, Queen Elizabeth met President Eisenhower. She would go on to meet every U.S. president during her reign, except Lyndon Johnson. She often spoke of the strong and vital bond between America and the U.K., I just want to bring up a couple things about the clip that I just played. First of all, it's very amazing the way things were orchestrated for Elizabeth to become the Queen of England. She was not in the direct royal line originally. Her uncle was actually the king, and he abdicated to marry a divorcee. And so her dad became king, and then her dad died, and she became queen. So it was really something that was thrust upon her as the the person articulating in this clip said it was not thought when she was a little girl that she would be the queen of England, let alone the longest reigning monarch uh, in modern history or possibly in all of history, but so she was. 
The next thing I wanted to bring your attention to is the message that she gave when she began her reign. She said that she was dedicated to the service of her people. And I think that that was really good, especially given the fact that we often think of the monarchy as something that just gets passed from generation to generation with little thought of what it means to the constituents, to the servants, to the people that you are affecting. And she knows that she inherited this through her uh, lineage, but she also didn't take it for granted. She also knew that it was an important responsibility and held that close. And I think there's a good example there for us. I think of the King Solomon in the Bible when he was promoted to king after the death of his father. God said, Solomon, what do you want? Do you want wisdom, fame, or riches? And he asked for wisdom because he said that he was a little child who was charged with leading a great people. And I get that attitude from Queen Elizabeth, and I just really appreciate that. And she seemed to be a very humble lady for her station in life and also seemed to have a fairly vibrant Christian faith that she was not ashamed to talk about. And that's actually the next clip that I want to share with you is a couple of her observations about Jesus himself and his importance in her life, but also in the lives of everyone who will accept him. He was arrested, tortured, and crucified with two criminals. His death might have been the end of the story, but then came the resurrection and with it the foundation of the Christian faith. The Bible describes in graphic detail what the Queen summarised very succinctly there, that Jesus was tragically betrayed, publicly arrested, illegally tried, falsely accused, wrongly sentenced, violently beaten and then mercilessly crucified. His death wasn't pointless though, it had great meaning. Because the Bible says that on the cross, Christ died for our sins. He gave his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for our wrongdoings. He took the punishment that we were due so that we instead might be forgiven. As the Queen also said, his death wasn't the end of the story. The Bible says he rose again on the third day. And as Her Majesty said, the resurrection of Jesus became one of the great pillars of the Christian faith. But in her final clip, the Queen encourages us all to take the important step required to personally benefit from the forgiveness which Jesus' death and resurrection are able to provide. In the last verse of this beautiful carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, there's a prayer. O Holy Child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. It is my prayer that on this Christmas day, we might all find room in our lives for the message of the angels and for the love of God through Christ our Lord. So the Queen's prayer is very simply that people like yourself will make room for Jesus in their lives, will turn from their sin, put their trust in Jesus Christ and ask him to come into their hearts to be their own personal saviour and Lord. I wonder if you'll do that and I wonder if you'll do it today. I was really encouraged to watch this video and, and hear these clips and there's there's many more times when she has mentioned her Christian faith. She's talked about how important it is for her to know that she's accountable to God for her actions. So I think that we didn't just lose a classy lady, but we lost a strong uh, moral Christian influence for the British Empire. And now we wait to see what will happen as King Charles III takes the throne. Uh, but I do hope that we will take the admonishment of the queen and make room in our lives for the holy child of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, because that's really what life is all about. Whether you have 96 years to live as she did, or whether you have 30 years to live, or whether you only have 10 years to live, the best way to live them is with a relationship with Christ Jesus. He is the only hope for our lives, and I hope that you will embrace him today. 
If you have any further questions about that, please don't hesitate to reach out with the contact information that will roll at the end of the show and let me know how I can help you to learn more about a personal relationship with the best of masters, Jesus Christ. As I said, we are continuing on in our Unique Attributes of Christianity series, and I'm really enjoying this study because I think it helps to bolster our confidence in our faith, and as we are bolstered in our confidence, we will be encouraged to share that faith with others and help them to be encouraged as well. That really is one of our main goals here on earth as Christians, is to encourage others to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus and to spread the gospel so that we can bring new people into the kingdom of God. So we are talking today about the unique aspect of justice and mercy. Most of us know, even in our modern culture, that we do not do everything right. But the way that we deal with our guilt says everything about us. One way of dealing with our guilt is to say that we're basically good, that we occasionally screw up, and that we hope that our good outweighs our bad so that at the end of time, we get into heaven that way. And one way of dealing with guilt is to beat ourselves, either physically or metaphorically, and to just always have a low opinion of ourselves and never feel like we can accomplish anything. And both of these are extremes that the Christian knows are unhealthy. And so today we're going to dig into this aspect of justice and mercy, the balanced way to deal with our guilt. And I want to start with our quote of the day, which comes from John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, these are extremely important balancing principles, those of grace and truth, because the truth is that we fall short of the glory of God. And grace tells us that because we fall short of the glory of God, we can trust in the life-saving work of Jesus Christ to make up what is lacking in ourselves, which is everything. Because I want to be very clear here that we're not talking about someone who is basically good, who is 80% there, and then Jesus provides the other 20%. We are talking about someone who is 100% dead in their sins and needs Jesus to provide everything that pertains to to life and godliness. So let's get that out of the way right off the top. There's nothing good in any of us. All the good that we can get comes from the Lord Jesus. So let's go through some points of this discussion together. The first one that I want to mention is we all fall short of God's glory. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I share Romans 3, 23 and 24, because I feel like in modern conversations about the gospel, we share 23 freely, but we don't share 24 right away, which is sad because 24 is the good news. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus because we have fallen short. Even if I were to dramatically cut down on the number of sins that I commit and I only committed one sin a day, that's 365 sins a year. And if I've lived 43 years without doing the exact math, that is a lot of sins. And I can guarantee you that I've committed more than one sin a day. My family will probably be glad to fill you in on that. They live with all of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm grateful that they still love me. But that's a part of living the Christian life, is to know 
that we fall short of God's glory. The next point I want to bring out is that the law cannot redeem us. God instituted the law to the children of Israel and he said, this is what you are to do to be blessed by me. And yes, in the Old Testament it appears that we need to do the law completely or we will be punished and surely the children of Israel were punished for not following God. But the real purpose of the law was to show us that we can't do it all. Because the reality is that following 630-some Jewish laws that the Bible lays out is utterly impossible for any human being. That's why we have the system of sacrifices that you find in the Old Testament. And the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be done year by year, over and over again, because they were not sufficient for our redemption. Here's what the Bible says about the law. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, these offerings had to be made year after year, time after time, and there was no end in sight for those. But then when Jesus came, he came as a great high priest who was able to go into the Holy of Holies and lay down his life once and for all so that we could have free access to the Father through him and so that we could have a future in heaven. He was able to fulfill the law in a perfect way so that we could be seen as fulfilling the law through his righteousness because the law was unable to give us redemption because we are imperfect dead people who have no ability in ourselves to do the right thing. So what else do we know about the law? We know that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I've already mentioned this a little bit, that the law was a way for the children of Israel to know that they fell short of God's glory. Here's some further thoughts about that concept. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. And that's Paul in Romans 7, verse 7. So he's saying that even though grace supersedes the law, the law was important because it was by the law that I knew I was a sinner. If the law had not been instituted, then obviously you can't get in trouble for breaking the law. But because the law was in place... Paul was able to see that he was a sinner. And then in Galatians, Paul writes, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law was that tool that God gave us to show us our need for the Lord Jesus. One of the interesting things that Jesus will say repeatedly to the Pharisees is that even though they profess to be following the law, their hearts are far from God. And they added so much to the law that they missed the finer points. They would say, well, I'm going to give this money as a gift to God, so that means I can't care for my parents. Even though the law itself said, honoring your father and your mother And this is the first commandment with a promise. So their feeble efforts at following the law missed the finer point of caring for those that God puts in our lives. We can't use service to God as a reason to abdicate other responsibilities. We must serve others and in doing so serve the Lord Jesus. So what is the answer? How do we deal with this issue? Well, the answer is that 
Jesus gave us full redemption. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but now are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So Peter is laying out the fact that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could live unto righteousness. We were not able to live unto righteousness on our own. We had to have the intervention of Jesus Christ. The final point on this list of important points on this balance of justice and mercy is that when we embrace the justice and mercy that our faith provides, we are able to walk in newness of life. We are able to have a new purpose of life. I talk about a lot in my sermons and on this podcast that we need to live purpose-driven lives that the world tells us our life means nothing. The world says we got here by accident, we're living here by accident, and when we die, we'll just go into nothingness. The reality is that embracing the justice and mercy that God gives us allows us to walk in newness of life. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. So God gives us the power through his crucifixion and resurrection that we can be risen, that we can be made new, that the dead can be made alive, and that when we are made alive, we have the ability to walk in newness of life. And then because this reality is so powerful... I have a couple more passages in regard to walking in newness of life. The next one is Galatians 2.20 and 21. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Do you realize that if you add anything to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, if you add anything to the fact that he died on the cross for your sins, you are saying that Jesus died in vain. The perfect Son of God would not have submitted himself to death on the cross if there was more that needed to be done. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. So we need to remember that it is indeed finished. And then finally, for the love of God constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So our purpose in living is to live for the one who died for us and rose again. What a powerful statement that is to us when we start to lose perspective, when we start to wonder what it is we're doing here. Remember that we are here to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to review these points very quickly here. Um, First of all, we talked about we all fall short of God's glory. None of us is good enough. The argument that I'm a good person does not work because the Bible tells us otherwise. Then we talked about how the law cannot redeem us. We talked about how the law falls short, but that Jesus in his sacrifice is enough. Then we talked about how the law is a schoolmaster. 
So the law could not redeem us, but it had its purpose. It pointed out to us our need for a redeemer and showed us how we could be righteous in the eyes of the law, and that is through assuming the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then Jesus gave us full redemption, and we talked about how Peter told us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could live righteous lives. And then after we accept the justice and mercy given to us at the cross, we are able to walk in newness of life. And we talked about how we are buried with him in baptism and raised to newness of life. We talked about how the life we live, we live in the power of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how if he died for us, we should live for him. So I hope this has been encouraging to you as we have discussed this important topic of balancing justice and mercy. And I hope it gives you a good framework for explaining to people how to deal with their guilt. Because I really feel like one of the things that is permeating our society is people who feel guilt and do not know how to deal with it. There is a lot of sin in this world and it needs to be dealt with through only one means and that's through kneeling at the foot of the cross and accepting Christ's sacrifice for it. How often in our human effort have we failed and said, I'm going to do better? When in reality, what we should be doing is submitting to God and saying, God, I can't do better. I need you to help me. And he will do so. His goal is to conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. And if we allow him to, he will do it. Before we say goodbye, I want to share with you a couple more clips from the Speaking for Him scrapbook. Now, I've been sharing with you episodes from this 500-plus episode run that we have done, known as the Speaking for Him podcast. We're closing in on our 10th anniversary, the second week of October, which I'm very excited to celebrate with you. As I said earlier, please make sure that you let us know any insights or anything that you would like to be included in that special broadcast. We will do our best to do that. But today I have for you a couple different clips from an interview that I did with Israel Wayne, because I was not able to choose just one. So I'm going to play the first clip, and then I will have some thoughts, and then I'll play the second clip and have some thoughts as we finish up. It's kind of like um, the family size issue because my parents had 12 children and my brother and sister-in-law just had their fifth and they were already getting grief from people after they had four, you know, and to me, it's a grief to my heart that four is considered this large family because I went, I grew up in a big family, the oldest of 12, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I wish people would realize the true blessing of children instead of the commodity nature that we seem to approach it with today. Well, two, two comments I'd like to make on that. You know, you're absolutely right that people like to look for exception clauses because they feel like if they can find any exception clause, then that negates a rule. And so oftentimes in discussion, you'll find people pushing to the furthest extreme to find that one exception to a situation. And if, if one exists, then they like to claim that there, 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 there is no rule then, and, uh, which, of course, is a fallacy. And then on the second point about children, um, one thing about evangelical Christianity is that Christians are largely pro-life. Evangelical Christians are which is good, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but evangelical Christians overall are not predominantly pro-child. Um, in fact, we have a very negative view of children as a, an evangelical culture. We think of them as a nuisance. We think of them as a financial drain. We think of them as an impedance uh, or impediment to career and to income potential. Uh, we don't even like them sitting in the service with us on Sunday morning. Um, everything about our culture uh, tells us that children are a bad thing, and for the most part, Christians have allowed themselves to be informed by culture rather than Scripture. 
but Jesus had an extremely high regard for children, and we should as well if we're uh, his followers. Absolutely. I wanted to key in on one specific thing that Israel said in this clip. He said, the evangelical church is largely pro-life, which he is grateful for, but they are not pro-child. And I know that I brought this up before. This was really brought to the forefront for me in specific form way back when I reviewed the movie Unplanned. Uh, that was the Abby Johnson story. And I got together with a group of people and saw a pre-screening of the film and then partnered with a ministry, Life Matters Worldwide, for a day of screenings of this film. And that was one thing we talked about in the pre-screening that we went to um, was this idea that we cannot just be pro-life in practice, we have to be pro-life in heart. And so many people... They say they're pro-life, but they still have the same reasons for limiting their family size as people do for abortion. So they can kind of have a pro-choice view in their heart while still being practically pro-life. Now, I'm not saying that they should switch their view to pro-choice. What I am saying is that they need to look at their heart and see what God may be saying about how they should respond to children because Jesus said suffer the little children to come unto me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God Jesus said that children are one of the few earthly blessings that we get to take with us and so I think it's very disappointing that our modern approach even within the church seems to be commodity wise like I'm finally ready to have a child or I know I want one or two, but no more. Or how crazy could you be that you have 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12? I think as soon as we had five in my family, people started to realize that we weren't going to stop anytime soon, and they were very negative in a lot of contexts about that. And so I think it's just important for us to evaluate our overall attitude about children and I so appreciated Israel for bringing that to the forefront uh, because it needed to be said. And I will continue to say it as long as I have a platform to that children are a blessing and that we need to encourage people who are having children, not discourage them and make them seem like it's a burden rather than a blessing. Are there difficulties that come along with it is every day a party no but at the end of the day your children will rise up and call you blessed if you give them a godly upbringing and they will be a key to preserving the gospel as we go forward one of the impetuses for me to even begin to talk about family issues was several years ago I noticed in the first chapter of Judges that there was a story about the people of Israel after Joshua died and after the people that served with Joshua died and it says these sobering words there arose a generation that knew not God and I said when I noticed that passage and when it was impressed upon my heart, I said, not on my watch. And the tricky thing that we have to navigate in ministry today is it used to be much more clear who the godless were and who the godly were. The godless would stay completely away from the Bible and the godly would be all about the Bible. And I think Satan's getting a lot more creative by allowing people to use the Bible out of context in a guise that is not honoring to God. And so not only do we have to battle the totally secular mindset, we have to battle the mindset that says, I can take scripture and make it say whatever it is I want to. So that is a passion of mine to make sure that we are rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the impetus behind this unique aspects of Christianity series to give us the true context and truth behind our faith.
This next clip is Israel Wayne talking about the biggest myth regarding homeschooling. You know, there's a lot of people that looked at my family and said, I don't know how you do it. I could never homeschool. And a lot of people are convinced that they could not. One of the downfalls of our modern education system is that it has served to tell parents that they have no ability to teach their children. One of the things that I have been convicted of in the last couple of years is the way that the public education system in particular and the American education system in general seems to operate is that if we got to the place where it was compulsory to send your kids to nursery school as a baby, if it was required, and that baby started walking in school, parents would be convinced that they had no ability to teach their child to walk. And right now, in most places, it's not compulsory to go to school before first grade. But there are pushes every so often in various states to make compulsory earlier and earlier education. And that's why I make that bold statement. So this clip from Israel addresses myths associated with homeschooling. What's the biggest myth that you hear people outside of our community um, give about homeschooling? And what would you say to dispel it? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to just recommend two websites for people. Uh, if you live in Michigan, where I live, uh, go to inch.org, I-N-C-H.org, and uh, consider attending the Inch Convention in Lansing. It's always the third weekend of May. Um, that's a great place to get um, information on curriculum as well as hear great speakers. But the other website for those uh, nationally or internationally is hslda.org, and you can learn a tremendous amount about homeschooling on that website, find out the laws in your state, and uh, get plugged into state and local homeschool associations through their website. But, you know, I think there's this thing that I call the cult of the expert, and for generations now, we have had uh, teaching that parents are incapable and incompetent of raising their own children, and that they need to step back and let the experts do it. And unfortunately, that has crippled a lot of parents into believing that there is that they just don't have the intelligence, that they don't have the stamina, they they don't have the know-how to be able to. Uh, again, you know, you're the parent, and I think we're skipped by the academic portion of it. But there's so many things. There's, there's video tutorial. There's online tutorial. There are co-ops. There, you know, where, where other people can teach certain classes. The academic side, you can figure out. There's a, a myriad of ways to be able to teach the academics. Um, you just have to believe that no one cares more for your child than you do. Um, that no one knows them better than you do. And you are the most important, most influential person in their life. And you can use that. You can leverage that to, um, to, to be able to uh, teach them and, and maintain that bond as opposed to sending them off to someone else and having that allegiance shift from you to someone else and having them become the most important, most influential person in your child's life. Uh, I just encourage you to believe that God gave your child to you for a reason and he he uh, has equipped you he's given you everything you need to be a parent uh, to your child and so uh, everything in scripture says you're called and capable and qualified um, everything in the culture tells you you're none of those things and so I would just say get a biblical worldview and um, listen to the voice of the scripture as opposed to the voice of the culture well, and if we're looking at the scriptures, uh, there aren't very many qualified people that God uses. Think about that. We are told by our culture that we're not qualified to teach our kids. But all through scripture, you read story after story of people like Joseph and Moses and Paul who were not qualified to do what they did. But they were called by God, and he gave them the power to do what their task was. 
In closing, I just want to reiterate this by saying, God often gives you a vision for life, and he may make it impossible or seemingly impossible for you to do, so that when he does it through you anyway, he will get the glory, and it will be an amazing testimony of God's grace. So I want to just give a shout out to Israel Wayne and thank him for coming on for that interview. We should probably have another interview and see how things are going with you right now, Israel. But that remains a highlight of this podcasting journey for me to be able to talk to you and to be able to speak with someone who shares my passion for teaching the next generation of godly leaders. I think it's important to realize that Israel mentioned that you can get help with the academic side of things. But the most important thing is that God gave you your children and he said to you, not to the school, not even to your church, he said to you, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a parent's responsibility and they will give an account to God for how they fulfill it. Well, that's all I have time for this week. I hope, as I said, that you will check out episode 238 of the Speaking for Him podcast to hear that full interview because we talked about a lot more stuff and I think you will find it encouraging. If you have any questions about the show or about a personal relationship with Jesus, don't hesitate to reach out and please let us know how this podcast has impacted you over the past decade. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.